0: Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the podcast that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, a.k.a. The Passenger and football finance expert Kieran Maguire, a.k.a. The Stig from Top Gear. Now, later later we'll be hearing from Tom Greatrex, who's vice chair of the Football Supporters Association, about their new campaign Sustain the Game, which is encouraging the government to act on its manifesto commitment of a fan-led review of the governance of football. Um, somehow Kieran producer guys managed to make that sound a lot less interesting than it actually is um, it's basically it's a five point campaign about us getting our game back and we had a very interesting chat with, with Tom I say we Kieran it seems got called in for an early tea by the governess so you, you, you baroness oh, you the governess that's a completely different show that one Kieran <laughs> <laughs> yes we lo- we lost you on the interview uh, unfortunately so um it was it was big pictures, man, uh, with Tom, who's details, man. Uh, so I could have done with your help a couple of times. Um, but anyway, Kieran, once again, uh, a week without actual football has thrown up a lot of football stories, so let's crack on. I'm sure the Baroness was overjoyed to hear that FIFA have published its latest accounts.
1: Uh, yes, uh, all 226 pages of them, um, which, uh, which kept me up uh, mo- most of one night. Um, uh, Of those 226 pages, about 210 were were pictures and happy, smiling faces. But I think there were a a few things which perhaps are a bit of a cause for concern. Uh, FIFA lost £280 million last year. And and by last year, I mean 2019. So therefore, that's not taking into account the pandemic. Um, To be fair to FIFA, um, they, they have... Uh, they have given out $1 million to each member of FIFA, as about 209 in total, uh, to, to help them cope with the pandemic. I don't think it's make a huge amount of issue to the Bundesliga or, or the FA, but for uh, certainly for smaller countries, uh, it, it will make a difference. Um, they have said that their uh, their checking and their auditing of where that money ends up uh, has improved. Uh, a, a few years ago. Thirty-eight uh, percent of the money that was being given out by FIFA was being withdrawn in the form of cash, which I don't really think is is the way that you'd expect a football organisation to to work. Uh, our chum, Mister Infantino, he he's uh, he's trousered just shy of two million dollars, uh, and and I think if, uh, if we're looking for a job in football, Kevin, uh, being a council member on FIFA uh, is, is where we should be looking at. Uh, they, uh, they 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 put back $35 million between them
0: wow. uh, from what they did. I'm not quite sure. Well, that, that level of cash payments is all you get in the comedy industry, not the football industry. That's um, um, I, I'm slightly worried about the answer to this question. He, you know, that, that million pound, as you say, is not a lot to the big countries, but to some of those smaller countries about whom you've had doubts in the past uh, and their membership of FIFA, that represents a fair bit of money, I presume, doesn't it? Yes, it is. And, and, and on
1: top of that, they can apply to FIFA for grants as well uh, in order to try to top that up. Now, there, there are some absolutely brilliant projects which are being run by FIFA. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we're hope, hoping the money does go in
0: respect of those. But it uh, <laughs> has had a, a few problems. Okay, now talking of grants and financial aid, the Premier League is insisting that the EFL backs its opposition to an increase in homegrown player quotas after Brexit before it agrees to provide financial support for struggling clubs. That's kind of three stories in one there. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Um,
1: yes, uh, there's there's been a bit of a standoff between the Premier League and and the FA since the Brexit vote in, in twenty sixteen. Um the FA wants to increase the number of homegrown players from eight to twelve. Um and it says if it does that it'll be it's willing to be a bit more flexible in terms of how it deals with the government in uh in, in work permits from people for other countries. Right. So there's there's a bit of horse trading there. The uh, the Premier League is pushing back on that. It, it wants to recruit as worldwide as possible, um, and and it would prefer to have fewer homegrown players because uh, as far as the the club owners are concerned, uh, they're they're more interested in, in A, winning the Premier League, uh, but B, um, have success in Europe, and therefore they want to recruit uh, the the best players they can worldwide in order to do that. Um, Then apparently, and this is a story um, I picked up from one of the newspapers, um, the the Premier League are in some form of negotiations with the EFL to give them a bailout of 250 million pounds over four years, but uh, in order for that to take place, the Premier League are saying to the EFL, well, we want you to to come on board with our proposals for these homegrown players, and and the, and the EFL are going, well, yeah, we don't particularly care because. The nature of playing in the EFL is you tend to have more homegrown players anyway. Yeah, yeah. So it's all a bit messy.
0: I would have thought, though, that given the circumstances, struggling clubs in the EFL would agree to anything for financial help, wouldn't they? I mean, if you if you said you have to have a giraffe in every garden, they'd have a giraffe in every garden, wouldn't they?
1: Well, th- there is this, um, and I can't see really why um, the, the EFL would kick up too much of a fuss unless they're trying to get better terms off the Premier League. Yeah. My, my only concern is if we go back to a topic that we've looked at a couple of times historically, which was the elite player performance plan, um, that was something the EFL clubs agreed to at the time because it gave them guaranteed share outs from the Premier League TV deal. But you, sport, you, you talk to, to fans at most clubs and indeed you, you talk to a few owners these days as well. And they now realise that under EPPP, they, they get uh, they get fairly well shafted when they've got a good player coming through as a development player and that uh, they end up effectively having to give them away for peanuts. Hmm. Uh,
0: now, Producer Guy has been somewhat laconic about the title of this next story. And I should explain to people, by the way, because some, I have been asked by one or two people, Producer Guy is not a title as in Family Guy. Uh, his name is Guy, and he's the producer. So when I say producer guy, it's yeah. But anyway, uh, as I say, it's been rather laconic with the title. Of his name. Uh, basically, some concerns about the price of England's new kit. And the thing is, if you, if you Google the price of England's new kit, you get a story from every season since the internet began, basically. This is a, an annual story. Um, and it, it, it's very I mean, they've gone back to the Euro 96 kit, uh, but with very much England 2020 prices.
1: That's right, if, if you want a a basic england shirt um it's going to cost you that's I think that's called a stadium shirt yeah um that's going to cost you seventy quid if you want to put a name and number on it and I, and I find this a bit strange, given that you're not quite sure who's going to be in the England team apart from harry kane um then um it's going to cost you eighty five but if you want a match kit mm. it, it then it then ramps up to a hundred. Pounds, and I was looking at some of those match kits, and 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 they sell them in double XL. Well, you know, surely if, if it's a match kit, double XL shouldn't be available. Um, then it goes to 115 pounds if if you want uh, a match kit with name and number. But I think the thing which sort of hacks me off even more than the prices is that. The FA has joined in with this mentality that a football kit lasts for one season only. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, England have brought out both home and away kits. They're probably going to pay no, play no more than fifteen matches over the course of the next twelve months. So you know, there's, there's going to be some Euro, uh, sorry, some Nations Cup matches. Uh, hopefully, they're going to go far in the European Championships next summer. But even so, we're looking at no more than 15 matches. So the home kit could end up being worn you know, perhaps nine or ten times and the away kit four or five. And then they say, oh, next season... Uh, or next august we're going to introduce another one so you're not really getting fantastic value for money for your your, your 70 pounds basic and and ramping up from there
0: yeah i the, the cost of the shirt is one thing the price of the price of adult shorts replica adult shorts is 55 quid uh which doesn't bother me because i think any adult who buys replica shorts it, you can just charge him through the nose frankly because adults shouldn't be wearing replica shorts but what worries me about this story is it yes it's, it's The kit's been released with a great deal of razzmatazz, as usual. And I can't help feeling the FA haven't noticed that there's a global pandemic on and people might be a little bit short of money. I mean, surely this is the time, I know kit deals notwithstanding, but surely this is the time when they say, look, you know, just for this one season, we'll keep the old kit, keep your money in your pocket. It just seems, as as you say, that tin ear, they seem to have a a little bit of a tin ear about this, don't they?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, it could be that they've got a contract with Nike that yeah. something has to be introduced and it's a home and an away kit every year. And that's that's part of the deal. But I, I agree with you entirely. That there is There is no demand. There is no demand from any football fans this week for England to introduce a new football kit. Yeah. So so why they chose to bring out one, I mean, I can understand it slightly from clubs, and especially if you're looking at a club such as Leeds United, which is back in the Premier League for the first time in 16 years. Yeah, I, I can understand that. But even so, the Leeds kit's cheaper than the England kit. Yeah. Um, but th- this seems to me just to be wrong decision at the wrong time same yeah.
0: as you yeah and as, as you say by the time you've hilariously had Grandad 65 put on the back of your shirt you're adding quite a few of you um ironically uh, somebody who probably can afford a new English shirt is Dunfermline players uh, because they've had some good news this week haven't they Dunfermline um yeah I mean Dunfermline is a fan-owned club yeah
1: um but they, they they've just signed an agreement Um, with uh, some German investors from Hamburg, one of my favourite cities. Um, And uh, the the German investors are initially going to buy 30% of the club, and they could end up buying 75% with the the Pals Trust, that the fans organisation, will still be a minority shareholder. And I think this is a really good thing going forwards for those clubs who are fan-owned, but perhaps are now realising that in order to, to progress, perhaps you do need some outside investment, that they still have um, a significant stake in the club, so therefore they can, they can have their voice heard. Uh, and too often I'm, I'm always concerned about clubs who, who sort of run out of money because they are fan-owned, yeah. and therefore somebody comes in and says, well, I'm going to take it all or nothing. Uh, but this looks really good. Uh, certainly the, the German owners are saying the right thing. Uh you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Dunfermline, mainly because of, of my love of the skids. Um, and, uh, you know, so good luck to all at East End Park.
0: Yeah, and um, uh, the skids are a band, by the way, just for those uh, – I don't know why I say America, but there will be confused listeners all over the world wondering why Kieran loves the skids so much. Surely not in his brand-new sports car. Um, I mean, and, and Dunfermline, historically, are a, a club in Scotland. You know, they're Stein's first club. Uh, they've won the Cup um, – I, as I think I've mentioned this before, and my favourite ever photographs was from, a, I think it was a shoot annual from 1969, where a, a Dunfermline player was in such agony, he was biting the shimp pad of a party fissile player. So they're, they're, they're a big club, but I'm, I'm always fascinated, and I, know I, I do always ask you this, which way round it comes? Would these people in Hamburg have been casting round for a club in british football or scottish football specifically or will dunfermline have said look as you say we've gone as far as we can go with fan ownership and fan investment let's find somebody to invest in the club
1: well i I was look i've listened to the the comments from the the german investors and they've been looking all over europe um i think it's intriguing that they've decided to go for scotland because uh you know dunfermline are presently in the championship but uh, a, a wee bit of investment could take them to the Scottish Premiership. And remember, Scotland are now going to have uh, two clubs going into the preliminary rounds of the Champions League. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, with a bit of an investment, you, know, you could get into Europe in either the Champions League or the Europa League. And that, that is a game changer for club finances. Uh, Dunfermline firmly lost, lost 700 grand last season. So they were in need of financial support and it seems to have come at just the right time.
0: Now, in the... I think you probably seventeen minutes that you've had between reading the FIFA report and researching for this show. You've had a look at Premier, which Premier League teams made the biggest profit on player sales over the last two years. Why can't you just relax, Kim? Take the dog out for a walk every now and again. No wonder the dog was so delighted when the next door neighbour showed up.
1: <laughs> well, and um, th- this this came about because um, there's been lots of grumbles and fingers pointed at Chelsea um because chelsea um have uh have spent heavily uh, over the course of this summer as far as the transfer market is concerned so and people are saying well how can they possibly do that in uh in in the context of financial fair play so um to satisfy my own curiosity and to uh, upset the baroness even further uh-huh. um i i went through the whole of the last decade every set of accounts of the last decade um, and and chelsea made Um, almost half a billion pounds from selling players. And that's before they sold uh, Eden Hazard uh, last summer. So the reason why Chelsea can uh, be successful in the transfer market in terms of buying is because they are the most successful club in in the Premier League. In each of the last four seasons, uh, and I suspect it's going to be five, they've brought in more money and more profit from player sales than any other club. So they've made 120 more than Uh, Spurs uh, they made 300 million pounds more than Manchester City 350 more million pounds more than Manchester United and and also Palace so if if you've got money coming in from player sales it allows you to 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 spend it on effectively whoever you want.
0: Fair enough um well still on FFP uh you've seen Lionel Messi play uh I would love to see Lionel Messi play at Selhurst Park, if only for the look on his face as an actual eagle screams towards him just before kickoff. Um, but many people are wondering how and it looks like Man City are the, the only lively Premier League club. And it, 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 there are rumours of a deal in the region of £623 million. But many people are saying, how, how can that possibly happen without City breaking FFP rules? Um, well, I think there's a, there's a variety of issues here. I mean, uh,
1: we don't know what the the transfer fee is going to be. This figure of 623 million is is the estimate for I think around about 100 million pounds of, of fee to Barcelona, um, and the rest is going into uh, Lionel Messi's remuneration package. Now Manchester City and, and I counted them um, have 43 sponsors and partners. Wow. Um, now, what they could do is that they could go to to one of their sponsors. You know, they've got uh, IT companies, they've got uh, gambling partners, and so on. And they can say, "Well, look, guys, um, we, we looked at the roster, and, and I'm not taking out on these players, but this year you've got John Stones and Kyle Walker to advertise your uh, to, to, to organize your noodle company." <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: um, and that's going to you know, and, and the deal we signed was one and a half million pounds. If you want to double that we could have a word with Lionel Messi. Yeah. How do you fancy doing that? And you only need you know, half of City's partners to do that. And all of a sudden, yeah, that's going to bring in an extra 30 or 40 million pounds. Um, I, I tried to find something similar. So is there um, a global superstar who moved clubs at the age of 33? And what was the impact on the accounts? And I was going to look at Glenn Murray signing for Brighton, but I decided to go for Cristiano Ronaldo moving from Real Madrid to Juventus. Similar players, similar players, often mistaken, often mistaken for one another. Similar temperament, yeah. (laughs) And um, uh, Juventus's income went up by fifty-two million as a result of of Cristiano Ronaldo signing. Now, I I think City with, uh, you know, they. they they're in a, a more advantageous position in terms of their, their partners and so on. I think City could probably top that. Um, and also, we, we then sort of move into the world of the City Football Group. We have, we've mentioned yes. them before. Yes, yes. They, they own seven or eight clubs. So um, one. I know your favourite topic in the world is the amortisation of football players, mm-hmm. where um, we take the cost of the fee and you spread it over the life of the contract. Um Realistically, I, I don't think Lionel Messi would play in the Premier League for more than three years. But what they could do is get him to sign a five-year deal, and at the end of the th- end of three of those five years, he then hops across to New York, where the, the pace of football is perhaps a little bit hectic, um, and therefore Manchester City won't have paid two years of amortization. So you know, there there are ways and round there are ways around this particular deal which
0: could make it actually break even from City's perspective. What, I'm going to make this question sound different to how it would have been because I, I don't want to again repeat myself about us being married for too long. Do you out, Outside uh, a City group type situation where you've got 12 or 13 clubs under the same umbrella, have you heard of any deals where a club signs a player for three years and then says the last two years of this five-year contract will be at another club? No,
1: no, you, you wouldn't be able to to do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, what, what I'm putting forward is is a suggestion. Yeah. You know, uh, and and it might just be an amazing coincidence that Leonor Messi moves to another part of the City Football Group, but it certainly is one of the benefits of of having sort of a mothership um, and and satellite clubs. Um, so it, it it is it is feasible. Um, you know, the, the alternative would be for City to to. To, to, to play him for three years um, and then try to find an independent club. But you know, given that his wages are likely to be eye-wateringly big, who is going to pay that type of money? And in theory, also have to go and pay Manchester City a fee um
0: at, for someone who 's thirty six or thirty seven i, I can 't help but thinking that this is actually financially good news for the rest of the Premier League. It might make man city <coughs> excuse me stronger favorites uh, to win it, depending on how you feel about whether he 's the player he was but any any game against man City is going to be sold out in advance now i mean and it, I cut yeah, you know, someone like Fulham, who still have that neutral bit they can charge what they want when Man City comes because they're going to be people who pay 300 quid on the off chance that Lionel Messi will be playing in the Premier League and they have their only chance to see him. Yep, yep. And you you, you think about there's quite a few
1: clubs that have sort of A, B and C matches and tiered prices. Now, no disrespect to City, but they're not always classified as an A opposition um, because that tends to be for... The, the clubs with uh, a bit more of a glamorous background, uh, you know, the likes of Manchester United, Chelsea, and Liverpool. Um, but I think it would certainly stick City into that uh, that particular group uh, when when they're trying to sell tickets to to home fans. So therefore, so, yeah, I agree with you entirely. Um, you know, the whole of the Premier League is going to to benefit from the, sort of the reflected glory
0: yeah. of uh, Lionel Messi. And even with all of City's money and potential money, do you think? if they do get messy for this huge huge figure that would be the end of their transfer spending for this season and possibly next as well um
1: no no because uh, remember they've sold Leroy Sané for true. around about 50 million yeah um i think what they might have to do is is a bit more uh, encouragement of a few players out of the door but uh, th- there's no reason um, if he brings in an extra fifty or sixty million a year of
0: revenue, that then to a certain extent he 's going to be paying for himself. Now, this company, we mentioned right at the very start of this pod when we had, uh, I think, 37 listeners in the first couple of weeks. Um, and thank you if all, all of them are still listening in amongst the tens of thousands that have joined us since. 23 Capital, uh, a lender that specialised in delivering uh, creative loans, guys put here, for football and entertainment uh, industries, uh, they appear to be winding down. Uh, I'm guessing this is an important story, but Why? well um i think i think actually it's it's reflecting
1: the state of the transfer market this company 23 capital it it sort of uh it arranged uh, finance for your industry the entertainment industry um and the football and it sort of effectively had two arms um but it only tended to deal in the the big transfers the likes of griezmann going to barcelona for 120 million euros yao felix going to uh, madrid for uh, 126. Um and those deals simply aren't around anymore. Um and it looks as if 23 Capital themselves, what they used to do was that they would borrow money, say at 2%, and then they'd lend it to the football clubs at six percent to fund this deal. And um, and they've said, and this is this is silver tongues talk here, but they've said we've had to realign a finance facility with one of our lenders, oh. um, which suggests to me that uh, the banks that are lending to them are getting a little bit twitchy. Um, but the sad thing, and I don't care what industry you're working in, the sad industry, 23 Capital are making staff redundant by the looks of things, um, which and I think it just shows that the, the glory days of the transfer market are no longer there
0: yeah and i also should point out that when you refer to the loans to my industry there's, there's very much a premier league and a champions league and a championship and then a league one and league two in my industry and those those loans are not trickling down to my end of the industry let's put it that way um now we we finished before our interview with with tom Greatrex, uh, two stories about social responsibility the first one kieran Listeners may have seen it sort of tucked away on the BBC website or a couple of others, but uh, an American listener of ours, Mike Bernardi, added some details. Uh, It does take a little bit of explaining before I get to the question. You'll know that many uh, US athletes refused to take part in competition sport last week as a protest against the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Wisconsin. Uh, some of those athletes were the players of Real, Salt Lake, and LAFC who refused to fulfill the fixture against each other. Uh, a move that Salt Lake's owner, Del Loy Hansen, um, and I. It's it's a serious story, but it's very hard to resist saying smooth operator after you say Deloy Hansen. Anyway, um, the owner Deloy Hansen described this as profoundly disrespectful to him personally and said it's like being stabbed. Uh, He then threatened job losses and redundancies across the board because of it, and he's now put the club up for sale. That's the shortest way I could find of asking, where do players stand financially, Kieran, when they they, they make a stand like that? I mean, it, it's it's the right thing to do, I think. But in terms of their contracts and in terms of how the owner responded, uh, and and I presume sponsors are waiting, how, how does it work for players like that? Well, I mean, US law is slightly different
1: to uh, UK employment law. Um, it would depend whether or not they, it was deemed to be gross misconduct. Um, the, the MLS Players' Union... Has uh, come in, come out in support, and and also, uh, and uh, you know, this is one of the issues which I think uh, Tom was referring to in his interview. The MLS has said it's trying to force uh, Delroy Hansen to sell the club. Yeah. So this is an example of the the football authorities um, standing up to owners as opposed to being part of the ownership uh, clique. So um, I think players they they've just stood on principle. Uh, ultimately, um, you know this this club, Rail, Rail Salt Lake, it, it can't play football without players. So if if there is um, unity between all players of all clubs, and they simply say, "Well, if you're going to sack the existing squad, um, we're we're not going to take their
0: place," and, and then how are you going to play football? Mm. Okay, and another player here with a proper social conscience is Marcus Rashford. I really hope we can find some way of making him BBC Sports Personality of the Year because. I mean, he's at it again. He's got the bit between his teeth, and fair play to him.
1: That's right. He's uh, he's got involved with some of the the food retailers, the likes of Tesco, Aldi, sainsbury and Deliveroo, um, and it's it's to do with um, supporting uh, people who are in financial difficulty, who have children, yeah. um, and the the objectives of his campaign is first of all to to expand free school meals. Um, and what people don't realize and, and uh, you know, uh, just, well, the Baroness is out of the house at present because she would be steaming in at present because she used to be a school head. Mm. Um, and she used to go and visit the kids who didn't turn up to school where she knew the parents for whatever reason, it could be booze, it could be drugs, it could be just bone idle. Yeah. Couldn't be sending their kids into school. And, and the, the only guaranteed meal that a lot of these kids were getting was at school. Um, so Marcus Rashford and hats off to the guy. He wants to expand free school meals. Um, he also wants to expand holiday food and holiday activities yeah. again to those kids whose whose parents might be on universal credit who are going to need financial assistance. Uh, he wants to increase the, the healthy Start start voucher scheme. Um, and all of these things, these are investments in children going forwards. Now he's seen the benefit of that investment. You know, the the the, the UK exchequer benefits from Marcus Rashford, who who had a you know, it, it didn't have it easy when when he was growing up, and and his his mum did her very best to 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 feed the family but it wasn't easy um and and now look at him he's a successful talented individual who who earns a lot of money and a large proportion of that money comes back to the country so if you invest in your kids it pays off you know and and educating people out of poverty and and using the, the 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 uh the activities of somebody with such a high profile of Marcus Rashford, I, I just, got, you know, my my hat is is permanently raised in his direction.
0: Well, I, I couldn't agree more, and, and part of it is not just the the financial aspect to this, but it's it's the fact that by him admitting that he had free school dinners as a kid, that his mum used food banks and and other social assets, it, it it's taking away the terrible stigma that still exists for hundreds of thousands of kids that are very you know from very poor backgrounds and it's it's actually showing them that, that you know there's no shame in, in having to rely on 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 food banks or three school dinners it's it's a good thing to be taken advantage of and it's the bad thing to take it away from from kids and also because it gives us and we do we probably bang on about this every fourth pod Kieran, and it's important that we keep banging on about it because it just shows that you know marcus Rashford. He doesn't want the publicity, but he's he's working at a very high level. He's working, I mean, he's getting companies together that wouldn't dream of cooperating with each other. But every single club, at every level of football, down to, to Clapton in the ninth level that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, they will all have players that are doing stuff on a, on a local basis. Roy Hodgson always talks about the players at Palace. You'll have players at Brighton on a very local basis. And I'm sure there's some kind of quinoa bank in the middle of Brighton I don't know but there are even in Sussex there are areas of poverty in Sussex that Brighton players will be doing their best to help and it's it's important that we shine a light on this and don't you know we, we must get away from this thing that footballers are, are ignorant greedy selfish young men for the, because the vast majority of them simply aren't yeah
1: yeah, yeah I've, I've taught quite a few footballers and they're an absolute delight and remember that they they tend to come because if you look at the yeah. demographic profile the majority of footballers come from working class families so you know they are aware of, of their community when they from where they've come from uh, where they've grown up and a lot of them are full of responsibility
0: yeah i, I had a really interesting chat with a, a premier league club ceo last year who was saying that one of the the issues with signing african players is that in their contracts they want things included that you know that a certain amount of the money has to go at source to various charities all over the world and it, it, and that's it's a that's a great problem to have but again these are things we're not hearing about we're just seeing the, you know, the transfer fees fees, wages blah 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 um anyway I, I, it's a terrible admission of a lack of vocabulary isn't it blah 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 um it's interview time kieran uh and because i think you did drop out here at some stage um I think you're probably you're probably too posh where you live. It probably doesn't like signals coming down from South London. Sometimes is that. Do you think that's what it might be? Do you think it's like one of those adverts you see for cameras on the door so you can look out the window and see where the, the radio waves are coming? Radio waves. i will got Agatha Christie, the radio waves. Um, uh, I, so we'll, we'll listen to the interview, which is very interesting, and then I'll, I'll, I'll ask you to pick up on a couple of things that Tom told us. Tom is Tom Greatrex, he's vice chair of a great organisation, the Football Supporters Association. Uh, I spoke to him just a few moments ago about their new campaign, Sustain the Game. Uh, Tom, thank you for joining us. Before you tell us about Sustain the Game, tell us a little bit about the Football Supporters Association and your involvement
2: with it. Yes, the Football Supporters Association was formed um, a year and a bit ago, merger of Supporters Direct, which was the uh, umbrella body for supporters' trusts and what was called the Football Supporters Federation. Um, supporters Direct, I was chair of previously, uh, and we focus mostly on government issues, uh, the FSF. Um, on a wide range of other issues and we joined together to make one representative fans uh, group for English football and I'm currently the vice chair of the FSA.
0: And before we go through the five main principles of this uh, frankly brilliant campaign, tell us why now?
2: Now because really arising from, well actually it's probably the last 12 months with what happened with Berry, um and the way in which... Uh, we started to uh, detect, you know, amongst football authorities that have basically been pretty complacent about it up until then, uh, a sense that some of the issues that we've been banging around for years were actually pretty integral to the health of the game going forward and for the future. And that has really been um, exacerbated by the not yet realized, but we can all see and feel coming consequence of uh, the shutdown and COVID and everything that relates to in, in relation to lack of match day revenue and the fact that, frankly, most professional football clubs uh, in the English uh, system and including down into the sort of some of the semi-professional leagues operate on a pretty unsustainable basis um, and they gamble every every year or a lot of them gamble every year and they're pretty pretty perilous position. And I think that has been brought home to to a lot of people in in, in very recent times. And we thought it was a good opportunity to um, really pull together the issues we think uh, need to be addressed to reform football in England, so we can protect clubs um, going through difficult situations. But importantly, so that when things are back on an even keel, which we hope is is soon enough, that's... Clubs are sustainable, and the and the health of the game can continue because that's what, as fans, we want to see. We want to see competitive leagues. We want to see you know our teams doing well on the pitch, but we don't want to see that happening at the expense of the clubs that we all invest so much time and effort and love and um, um, ambition and and hope and emotion into.
0: Yeah, it, it's funny you should mention match day revenue because about an hour ago, out of the blue, Palace uh, revealed their season ticket applications were now open and there's about 40 of us on the WhatsApp group and frankly, we need Bletchley Park to sort out who's, who's, <laughs> how we're going to get in, how many games we get to see, what games we get to see. So, that at least it's encouraging that we, there is a season ticket on offer for some reason. Um, there, are, there are five principles, Tom, um, all as important as each other's. The first principle of the Sustain the Game plan is protect our clubs.
2: Yeah, we think it's really important that football clubs, which are community assets and, you know, I'm I listened to to the pod regularly and I heard you just just recently talking about some of the issues around when clubs and grounds get separated into separate ownership and some of the consequences that we've seen of that Um, in a a whole number of different cases. And and obviously there are some cases now where that is or is about to be the case. I think it's one of the most worrying things actually from the Wigan situation that you could have a situation where potentially uh, the ground would be in different ownership from the from the club and, you know, I'm a Fulham supporter. We've been in that situation going way back in the sort of 1980s with property developer owning the ground. So, you know, protecting uh, those assets that um, are really, I think, you know, important signifiers of local and individual identity. When you think about the Berry situation, People like me that grew up in the south of England, I only ever heard of Bury because of the football team. Yeah. You know the name of the town and the, and the football team, and whether it's going back to your you know league ladders from shoot and everything else in the, in the past, that's where you'd heard of these places. And it really, I think, struck a lot of people when uh, this time last year, when you had the uh, still owner of what was Bury Football Club sort of saying in a blase way, "I didn't even know there was a football club in Bury when I bought it." Yeah. You know, juxtaposing that with the people whose, you know, their their, their their entertainment, their, you know, their identity with their town, what they do on Saturdays and have done through generations of their family just being ripped away from them. You know, clubs are not just any other business. They're not even any other leisure business. Um, you know, they are, they are community assets and they need to be recognised as such. And there need to be protections in place, I think, for, uh, for those assets to survive, uh, regardless of the various different ownership structures that football clubs will have from time to time. Because, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, go on, mate. I was going to say because, you know, owners will come and go and some will be very good and some will be less good and some will preside over good periods and some over bad periods. But the constant is the club, the the association with the supporters and the identity with the, of the place in which those those clubs exist.
0: See, I'm, I'm a comedian, Tom, and I'm a man of words. So I, I get furious when Kieran occasionally says something funny, which I should have said. It really annoys me. And occasionally I'll come across a phrase... That I think that's the phrase I've been looking for for years. And on your website, I've been trying to find the right words for years to, to talk about the level of protection that football clubs need. And, and on your on, on your website, it's quite simple. Football clubs need a level of protection in keeping with listed buildings or conservation areas, and that's that's it. They do need that. There needs to be something that you can slap on the ground and say, "This is not yours. This is ours.
2: You leave it alone." Yeah, and I think it, I, I think you know what has happened with a number of clubs in over a course of a few years. I think just underlines that you know, more and more. And I think what's 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 happening now is that that is starting to be recognised as being this isn't just about a minority voice of a few people that um, have been going on about this for years. Uh, this is actually something that's pretty integral to uh, protecting the game. And, you know, when you think about it in the, at the Premier League level, when you're having, you know, uh, all, the, uh, all the statements that the, the executives of the Premier League make about what a successful product it is, one of the reasons why it 's successful is because it is the Premier League is part of albeit in some ways imperfect but it 's part of a system of a set of leagues in England with promotion relegation competition opportunity and you know my team and Wigan and hull um, and Swansea are all teams I could think of in the recent past we 've been in all four divisions, and that moving up and down that the integrity of that pyramid is integral to what makes um, I I would say the Premier League is attractive as a marketer's product um, uh, if you want to think of it in that in those terms as much as it is the players that get attracted to the to the big teams it's all about the integrity of this, the pyramid and that has to be protected and it's no good for the Premier League to sort of on one hand say that and say say they recognise that and they recognise the role of fans and warm words but to be then in a situation where if they're not against they have been in the past not so much now but frustrating uh, i think some of the some of the case for reform and protection because it's about in the end it's about protecting the game which is in the interest of the people who own the clubs it's in the interest of the uh, governing body of the institutions it's in the interest of supporters and in the interest of communities they serve yeah well
0: funnily enough strength from the pyramid is one of the other principles i think we've dealt with that i want kieran to deal with the next two Kieran, if you don't mind because they're two things that are very close to your heart and um transparency about ownership and financial control so just talk us about those two through those two things tom
2: yeah again i think these are these are really important and drawn from uh experience the the Sports director and the FSA worked on some proposals, which uh, actually we took through the took to the FA board, which was a, an interesting experience. And in, uh, over the course of the last year, and, and got their 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 sort of outline support and backing. Which is, you know, we have um, in in England that from time to time had a situation where we don't know who owns the clubs. Yeah, you know, and. The most obvious very, very recent example, which we sort of did know but didn't really know, is what's happened at Wigan. And you can see the consequence of that. But it's not that long ago that um, the then chief executive of, of Leeds United, um, who went on to other things afterwards, was in front of, I think, a parliamentary select committee and couldn't say who owns Leeds United. You know, there's, there is, a, there is um, I think, a really important principle here about, about people having the right to know who owns their club um, and then how the club's... Um, Operate within the within the framework that they they're supposed to, because uh, if you don't, that's when and there isn't enough level of scrutiny on it, that's when bad things happen and they can't be rescued. Then you know, in a situation where uh, where things aren't you know you aren't able to monitor what's happening, and therefore you aren't able to potentially step in or challenge or or, or make public various things that could help to you know stop a bad situation getting worse. It's nearly always the case. That when supporters end up in a position of having to, you know, really protest or be in a position where they're trying to save a club, be that, you know, what's happening at Charlton at the moment or what's ha- you know, what's happening at Wigan, wherever, whatever the situation is, that often happens right at the very end when it's almost too late for anything else. And that shouldn't be the case.
0: Uh, support to management is the last the last of the principles, basically.
2: Supporter, supporter engagement in the supporter engagement. sorry. yeah, yeah I can't read my own writing here. Sorry, yeah. Of of supporters, you know, we've we've got different models of of ownership in in English football. There are some clubs that are community owned and supporter owned, uh, be that the likes of Exeter or or AFC Wimbledon. There are other clubs that have been uh, at various points, and that now aren't again, like Portsmouth. Um, and it was very interesting the interview you had with um, with Clapton um, the the other week as well, and and the way in which that club has been brought together and is very successful. Um, look, the, what sits behind this is that fans are, are the lifeblood of the game. They're the lifeblood of clubs up and down the country. They're the only people I think, you know, who are as a group, a constant in a club, um, you know, everybody else comes and goes from time to time. Um, and they have always the best interests of the club at heart because they want the club to survive and to prosper. Um and they, I think it's just absolutely right that they have a voice in the clubs um, and the issues that affect them. And you can do that in different ways. You know, in some cases that'll be there have been and there are supporter representatives on boards. The supporters have a stake sometimes in clubs. Um, in others, like Portsmouth, for example, they have a heritage board, which means the things that are perhaps most uh, important to fans about you know things that might seem trivial but aren't, are about the identity, things like badge, kit colours. You know, you've seen what's names of clubs, things that happen. And other places are protected. And there's some really great examples of supporter engagement. I mean, give Accrington Stanley as an example, uh, as a, an English league club, where uh, the I think the owner at, at Accrington, you know, work on a very small budget with a team which doesn't attract huge crowds, um, which has been out of the league and come back into it. Um, he really understands and gets what Accrington's about. Yeah. Um, and he involves the supporters. And, you know, if you involve people, you probably get better decisions and they understand some of the parameters of some of those decisions and why you can't do some of the things that you might you know, think superficially would be the best things to do. And that is just very, very healthy. And where it has happened and it happens well, those are the healthiest, best run, most connected uh, clubs in, in the whole of the country. And where it doesn't happen, that's where you get the problems. That heritage thing is really interesting because you also suggested a code of practice on the
0: stewardship of football clubs to the FA, covering things like kit changes and name changes, but also uh, tax responsibility and not loading a club with debt to finance its per- purchase. Did the FA welcome that, that report? That's those suggestions. Have they responded at all?
2: Yeah. So the, the FA we we presented to the FA board um, uh, back in November time. We took uh, a motion. I'm a member. I'm a support representative on the FA Council. So I suppose in, in a sort of bizarre sense, I'm, I'm one of the blazers um, uh, that, that people talk about. And, you know, it's very interesting in those discussions that the, the FA members of that, FA Council and the FA Board, I think a year or so, a bit more than a year ago, 18 months ago, you would have had them sort of nod their head and say, well, all very interesting, but it's not really our, it's not really our game. You know, this is not our game. This isn't our bag, really. This is for other people to do. That attitude has started to shift. Now, not to the extent that we would like. We would like the FA to do what every other UEFA nation governing body does, which is basically regulate and license the game in those countries. We in England have abdicated that responsibility and given it to the leagues. And the problem, as you know, is that the leagues are the clubs. And so there is self-interest baked into that. And that means there are short-term decisions made quite often that aren't for the good of the game as a whole, but... What suit a majority of the clubs at a particular time, and those two things aren't always consistent with each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the FA are aware there are some real issues, and they're particularly uh, interested and aware because the bad practice then reflects on the good practice. If you see what I mean, so the clubs like Accrington or Tranmere, or you know, clubs that are, that are well run, uh, that have that that uh level of involvement amongst supporters in, in their communities, you know, those sort of model clubs get tar with the same brush of whoever it is who, you know, the two different owners who basically did for Berry in the football league or, you know, what the I think he is still a current, isn't he? The current owner of Charlton, he is the of uh, yeah. Charlton, Done. You know, all those things. Um, you know, it 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 reflects badly on on the clubs that are well run. And this is where I think we're starting to make a bit of progress on this, because uh, those clubs I think are getting fed up with being, you know, being tarred with the same brush, mm-hmm. and also with. Um, and you know, Mark Palias at Tram is really interesting on this, realizing that actually this, the system of regulation that we have at the moment isn't fit for purpose. There aren't the right type of financial and sustainability controls, and the fit and proper persons test and the directors the owners and directors tests um you know it just doesn't work because it's a snapshot in time and it's a pretty much a tick box exercise what they should be and it's analogous to other industries uh are is ongoing monitoring that enables problems to be picked up and not you know not to punish people but to say well look these are these are ways in which other clubs have been able to deal with some of these things and you know then it then it's a self reinforcing thing it's actually then uh, it helps to sustain the the health of the game as a whole which is Basically, what this is about, you know, everything that uh, we talk about in terms of sustain the game, as it sort of says on the tin, it's about the health and sustainability of English football as a whole. So that we, supporters of whatever clubs um, and people like you that do this great podcast you know, I'd love to be in a position where you have much, much less to talk about. Actually. Yeah, quite right. So would we. Okay. <laughs> yeah. so you can concentrate on supporting your teams and uh, and noting what's happening in the, in the game, but not doing it with a backdrop of, you know, almost juggling a whole number of clubs that are in really difficult situations at any one time. We want to get beyond that. And that's what this is about. And, you know, I'm optimistic, more optimistic than I have been for a long time. The level of support from not just supporters, but from within the game, from the political stakeholders across all political parties, um, and from those uh, like yourselves, you know, informed commentators and, and pundits and people who take an interest in in football, um, because of the current situation and what's happened in the in the recent past, I think you know now is the, there's more of an opportunity now to address some of these things once and for all, uh, as they need to be. And if we don't, all that will happen is we'll be back having the same conversation, but with you know. Clubs one, two, and three instead of um, Charlton, Wigan, and uh, and whoever else is in the frame at the moment.
0: I, 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 do i you know what? i'm slightly taken aback as so i haven't heard the word optimism on this pod for quite some some considerable months and it's 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 again for the second pod running i'm welling up a bit Now, you talk about the fa's response and you talk about um government agency response but part of the sustain the game campaign is to hold the government uh, to account for its manifesto promise of a, a fan led review of the government's of football Do you think they are committed to it? And how do you answer those people who inevitably say, well, at the moment, the government may just have other priorities to worry about?
2: Yeah, and, you know, look, to me, it's a fair point that, um, you know, the COVID uh, pandemic and everything associated with it came along um, a few months ago, and it basically has stopped the government doing lots of other things that it was probably planning on doing. Um, But uh, we know from our discussions, not just with Uh, politicians but also with civil servants that this is a manifesto commitment it's a commitment which has the support of the opposition party in parliament as well so there's it's something they can they can do with wider support Mm. Um, and that uh, it's something we hope that in the court over the course of the autumn we'll, we'll get started now the devil will be in the detail as all these all these things are you know in terms of the terms of reference and the structure and everything else but actually to have you know, I've not been making a party political statement, but to have a Conservative Party manifesto which talks about the need for a fan-led review into the sustainability and the way in which football is run. To have the likes of uh, Damien Collins who you had on uh, the you know, yes. the other day talking about some of these issues in the way that he did and is a, a very eloquent and articulate um, commentator on these issues and has obviously, you know, the time when he was chair of the Select Committee has gone into them in, 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 in quite some detail and depth of understanding. That you've got that broad range of political voices saying this is needed, I think is that's why I'm cautiously optimistic in a way that I might not have been before, um, because, uh, you know, they have been the bits that have been hard to reach. And I think those elements of this discussion have got to the point where they understand there does need to be reform. That won't happen by just saying to the leagues, uh, you need to do some reform. You know, that needs more of a push than that, because we've been there in the past and you have the warm words and then it all goes away when something else comes along. We've got to avoid that happening and we've got to really make this, make this count this time. And I think that's what we've we've got a good chance of being able to do.
0: Just uh, finally, it it won't surprise you to learn Tom, that obviously here at POF Towers, we're 100% behind the campaign and and the most cursory glance at every football website in the country basically indicates that every football fan is behind it. So what can our listeners do to help with this campaign?
2: So what, we would like people to do is to sign up to the campaign. You can do that on the FSA website. If you're um, able to, uh, if you're involved in, be they podcasts or fan supporter organisations, get them to sign up to it. Uh, write to your MPs, uh, ask them to sign up to it. A number have, but there are still others that we want to we want to get. And you know, if you're in a position where you're able to have some interaction with the people that are involved in running your club make clear to them that this is something that is really important you know it's important to know whether you're going to be able to get how many games you're going to be able to get to you know at selhurst park with the reduced capacity and for how long you know those are obviously really important things it's important to know uh, who you're going to have playing up front next season and, and how that's going to, how that's going to affect your your and uh, fulham's chances of trying to finish in the top 17 but it is more important that the game is sustained, that we know that the football league and the Premier League and the National League and the leagues that feed into it are on a sustainable footing. They can survive in the future uh, the, uh, the disruption of something like a, a pandemic. We hope we don't have another one, but, you know, those the ability to be able to survive through that and that the values uh, uh, and the identity that comes from your football clubs and your communities up and down the country is protected. That is the most important thing. I think, in football. You know, the other stuff is obviously immediately important and where most of the attention is. But without the the bedrock of sustainability, then the rest of football is uh, potentially at risk and some of the clubs are at risk. And we don't want to see that happen. We want to protect and sustain the game. Supporters have an important part to play and an important voice in all of this. And we think with the the package of reforms that we're talking about in terms of uh, identity, supporter involvement, financing transparency, we put the game on a much, much sounder footing for the future.
0: Tom, thank you so much for talking to us and articulating a lot of the things that we've uh, trampled around for the last year or so on this pod. Obviously, if there's anything else we can do to help you, we will. And we wish you all the very best. And we'll talk to you again soon, Tom. Thanks a lot, mate. Thank you very much. Kieran, I know you were were listening to to that campaign. I had the rather surreal uh, experience of you trying to put things in the chat and me trying to answer them, which wasn't always successful for two men of our age. But there are five main principles of the sustain the uh, the game campaign. Uh, and two of them in particular, I wanted to include you in. The five main principles, as we heard, protect uh, our club, strengthen the pyramid, supporter engagement, and then transparency about ownership and financial controls. The transparency about ownership, Kieran, is something you talk about a lot. It's a big B in your bonnet, but... It, just in terms of accounting and and law, is it something that is achievable, transparency over ownership? I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily uh, exist in other businesses. So why is it so important that it exists in football? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. It, it
1: doesn't necessarily exist in other businesses. And remember, we do have uh, Premier League clubs, which are controlled by companies in the Bahamas, in the British Virgin Islands. Uh, in the Cayman Islands and so on. And it, and it makes it difficult. Now, you know, we don't go to football for, for transparency, but it, you, you like to have a little bit of comfort. Um, under present rules, there is nothing to uh, force clubs. But this comes back to to one of the issues that Tom was sort of also raising. Um Self-regulation versus being regulated uh is 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 potentially the way forwards. Uh the the existing football authorities, and we, and we spoke earlier in the pod about we've got the FA and the EFL and the Premier League, um two of whom represent club owners, and and, and the third lot represent a bunch of Blazers, n- none of whom really represent fans. Um so uh I, I think we either need To to recognise that football, and as Tom and you were rightly saying, football is unique. It it is an integral part of uh, British society and football grounds are listed. Well, football clubs should be listed companies in the sense that um, they, they have to give more information in terms of ownership, more transparency. Um, we've still got clubs, and, and this, this, as you know, winds me up. We've still got clubs that haven't bothered to, to publish their 2019 accounts because they know it's if, if they just pay a hundred and fifty pound fine, they get away with the fans knowing absolutely nothing. So yeah. it can go forwards, but it needs it needs more than
0: the present authorities. And one of the few club CEOs who's um, publicly responded to the Sustain the Game campaign, which only started last week, and it's already got a lot of publicity, um, was Mark Catlin at Portsmouth, who seems to be one of the good guys. Uh, and he welcomed the Sustain the Game campaign, but said, and I quote, it's not a silver bullet, and rather disappointingly uh, said that self self-sustainability is all but impossible. Would you agree with that? um
1: I, I agree with him that it, it's not a silver bullet uh you, you could have a person with good intentions take over a club and for whatever reason they end up skint you, know, yeah. you you've had that with mark goldberg
0: yeah 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 yeah
1: so you know it it doesn't it doesn't automatically um get rid of our uh, you know no wrong uh scenario um in terms of the game being sustainable well you know we we have spoken about having some form of insurance policy similar to that what we've seen with airlines similar to what we've seen with travel agents and and if you want to buy a club um instead of this ridiculous situation where football clubs are changing hands for 1 pound yeah. yeah that that yeah. encourages shysters that encourages wrong-uns who think that they can flip a club if you say, if you buy a football club, and these are the regulations of the EFL or the FA, if you want to play in our competition, as well as that £1 for buying the club, you've got to put down you know, you know, £1 million, £2 million, £5 million, depending on what the division is, then it will automatically filter out those people who are in it for pure self-interest.
0: Yeah. I think, to be fair to Mark Goldberg, any Palace fans listening would probably want to downgrade him from wrongen to naiven. To be honest, because he he basically behaved the way I would behave, if I came into a bit of money, I'd buy the club, and then just he just got ran rings around by people who knew a lot more about finance than he did but I mean, again it's a classic example he bought the club for all the right reasons at the right time and was just out of his depth and left us in the worst situation and was very very upset about it but he, he's a really mm-hmm. nice bloke who held his hands up and admitted that it was his fault but for the for the if you like for the right reason so and there are people like that in football but again it's it's the good guys that need to be protected by regulation as much as the, the Steve Dales of this world anyway Kieran um Uh, This is the time that's become traditional in the last four weeks where I hand it over to you because I can't trust myself to say the big purple thing without giggling. So uh, last few words, Kieran, from you. Okay, well, well, thanks again for the feedback, folks. We, we we do we do sort of listen, but if you
1: could go to your Apple Podcast app and if you've enjoyed the show, if you can give us five stars, um, for some reason, and, and uh, producer guy knows the reason why he, he's never bothered to tell myself and Kevin, <laughs> probably because we just nod like a pair of nodding dogs and yeah. not have a clue what they're saying. But if you if you could give us a five star review, it really helps us as far as the ratings are concerned. It allows us to book guests uh, and things of that nature. Um, it, it will make a difference. It doesn't matter what you say. Apparently, you, you can say, you know, will it allow us to get somebody professional and replace me with a Swiss ramble?" You know, it's, and it's not for our ego. We don't care about what you write. We're, we're big enough to be able to cope with it. Um, but so thanks for all your feedback. And of course, stay safe. And uh, if you've got any questions for the show and we've got a big bank of questions, we're going to try and work our way through them. Of course, it's questions at priceoffootball.com.
0: Whoa, whoa, hang on. Whoa, that's my bit. You, you talk about expanding your part. Well, yeah,
1: I'm, I, I've been inspired by your theatrical background, Kevin.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I've, I've also feel on a bound to say what I always say. You might not be upset by bad views. I just go under the duvet for two days. So do do, do bear that in mind. And I'm going to, yes, questions at com. Thank you. And uh, two, two, you can have your two last words now, Kieran. Thank you. Stay safe I some football.